Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. Hello, how are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm on the forum again, and I don't know why. <laughs> I'm just I'm just going to pretend you didn't say that. The Elixir forum so far has been like really great for me to trigger that little, uh, oh, someone is wrong and I have to correct them. Those are my only kind of posts on there. That's that's a lot of how I feel about the forum. <laughs> Get out of the way. I'm a white guy with Google. <laughs> I just uh, avoid saying anything just about everywhere. My opinions are worth being forced onto people. <laughs> I just like to ask clarifying questions like I'm going to answer and then never post again. I'm trying to avoid the big topics with like 200 answers in them because... Few people are going to read them. I'm just going to be cranky in there and I'm going to get a million notifications I don't care about. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, when the thread is that big, it's pretty much something that would be akin to spitting in the soup. Like, I'm adding my part, but nobody really cares or even wants it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do we get to leave this part in? <laughs> yeah, sure. I feel like we can. I was really <laughs> asking Fred, you don't have a choice. Chris. <laughs> <laughs> what are you guys talking about? The forum. Oh, I, I mentioned I was on the forum again for some reason. Oh. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> Kisa, you do it to yourself. You sound like very far away, Anna. Me? All right. Yeah. Oh, because my mic is really far away. Oh, that's way better. I'm back. My current microphone really feels like bringing a spoon to a gunfight. It's not even a knife. <laughs> <laughs> no, you sound pretty good. It's it's the accent. It covers up all kinds of mic problems. Don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Wait, so what, what was on the forum this time that Keith Lee was in? Oh, just the forum. Oh, okay. <laughs> just generally. Just general. Somebody was yeah. like, I need pools. And somebody else was like, it's really easy to build your own pools. And I was like, that's where you're wrong, fam. <laughs> I mean, no, it's easy to write your own pool. It's just going to be garbage. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, did they qualify by saying they wanted well-functioning pools? Yeah, did you want a good pool? Because that's actually harder. <laughs> <laughs> somebody, somebody at some point had to write their own pool, though, that was good, right? Or do we just not have any good pools? There's some decent pooling options out there, but it's like saying that like you should build your own is basically comparing someone's like infinity pool to your inflatable like plastic <laughs> nonsense that you just throw out in the backyard. I mean, the idea of what is a good pool is very context dependent on what you're trying to do with it. It's like this is... Like, it's like high performance application, right? It, you're, try, you're talking to some people who have web apps and high performance is 250 requests a minute. For other people, it's going to be 300,000 a second. And then you talk to uh, high frequency trading people. And if it's not in nanosecond, they don't even listen to you. Right. right. <laughs> no, that makes sense. It's a really good point. All that, yeah, all that stuff is super, super case dependent. So do we have a topic for today? We have Fred on. You're, you're the topic, Fred. You are the topic. <laughs> That's all right. I think you were the very first uh, friend of the show. Yeah. I mean, I, I've listened to all the episodes, and I think for like the first eight or nine episodes, I mentioned in every one of them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, probably multiple times. We were talking a lot about property testing. I think that's why your name came came up quite a bit. So so maybe we should talk about that in, in your book. Yeah, in your book. Congratulations. Just a second. I'm adjusting. I'm sorry. I might holler here in a second. I'm oh, adjusting. adjusting your foot. Yeah. Um, two nights ago at like 10 o'clock at night, I decided I could either wake my kids up by turning the light on in the hallway, or I could wake them up by my screams when I fell down the stairs and, and twisted my ankle. So I, I, I chose to fall down the stairs. <laughs> it's not broke, luckily. It made popping sounds, and I thought it was broke, um, but it looks 
like a football right now. I'm sorry. That's no fun. It's pretty gross. So property-based testing. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Note to self for next time. Turn on the light in the yeah, hall. Yeah, I, t- I told my kids. I said, next time I'm waking you up. There's a let it crash joke in here somewhere. Hang on. I know, right? I was about I'm to say. About it. There's a let it crash something. The next foot is going to make it to destination safely. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, so yeah, property testing. Hopefully your processes recover faster than mine. So I think, have we all read Fred's book? I've, I'm on like my third time through because every time there's a new update to it, I have to read it again and see what changed. Mm-hmm. There's a change log, you know. I know, but it's I probably get more out of reading it again. I'm very distracted, so uh, reading it multiple times is probably good for me. That's an interesting thing because as part of writing the book, you have to reread yourself again and again and again. And with Learn You Summer Lang and proper testing, it's been roughly the same thing where at like after eight times reading yourself, you're just like hoping to be done and never think about it again. <laughs> <laughs> I like having written a book, but I don't like the book enough to read it eight or nine times. <laughs> but you, you, you have the, the actual physical copies are out now, right? Can right? I see yeah. that? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I received them by mail. Well, oh, hopefully by mail. Anything else would have been kind of weird, but yeah. In delivery <laughs> by the editor would have been pretty cool, but not worth the, uh, you know, the effort. Those would be very beefy pigeons. Yeah. <laughs> Were there ever physical copies of, of Learning Some Erling? Or is this your first physical book? Yeah, that was my first physical book. And it was uh, hulking 600 pages or so. Yeah, because the thing is that I was writing it directly as a website at first. And so the thing that you do is uh, I, I would, you know, do the print preview to a PDF and see how long it was. And then at some point it's like, okay, it's going to be 250 pages. That's long enough. But that's on like a letter format paper with no formatting in there. And then when they put it into the book, it bubbled up to 600 pages. Like, holy crap, that's much larger than I, what I wanted to do. Like, I could have stopped wow. a year and a half ago. <laughs> <laughs> think that's what happened to Knuth. He just kept going. He just kept going. Yep. What, what was the original motivation for doing um, proper testing? Just wanted more people to know about it? Right. So, so, so it's kind of interesting because at some point, like I, uh, when you start, you have a given motivation and then you keep repeating it year after year. And after a while, you don't know if the motivation you think you have now is the same you had back then. Because you, it's like a story. You just keep adding to it and nobody knows the truth. But right now, like the... Uh, the kind of story or reason is, well, first of all, it's always to force myself to properly learn everything. Uh, property-based testing is something I had started something like six or eight years ago, but I never really got control of the uh, stateful testing aspect of it. Writing about it forces me to dive into it and understand it in a way that I, I can digest well enough to re-explain it to other people. The other thing is that I really, really wanted to use property-based testing at work with my coworkers and everything, but since nobody knows how it works, it's not a responsible decision to impose it onto coworkers. And so I have to write the book so that I can give it to my coworkers so that they can learn property-based testing so that I can use it. It's a very, very long process of slowly convincing people of using the tech I want to use. Well, it's funny. At work, uh, in, in a lot of those situations, you, you get where, oh, that's that's just Fred talking. He talks about that stuff all the time. But once, <laughs> once it's a book, it's serious. It's very serious. I, I, I mean, at that point, my coworkers have the benefit of being able to learn without me talking to them, which I assume is kind of nice. <laughs> well, you're still talking to them, but now it's like asynchronous, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, they're opting into it. Their voice is just silent. Your voice is just silently in their heads, rather. Right, than... and they can put me in the cupboard and forget about me. Skip a bit. Of it. 
It, it's a much nicer interaction. It, it's a forum that nobody can respond to. Also known as a blog. Most challenging part of writing this book. That, that, that's kind of a good one. The challenge is always a long haul because you start writing, you're super motivated. You take a few half hours here and there to do it. And then you have to keep doing that for over a year of time. <laughs> that's the part that's really long. Like at some point, it's like, screw this, I'm tired. I don't have to do this. It, it's an Erlang and Elixir advanced book. It's going to sell like very low number of copies, all things considered. If it were Java or something, you would probably have a much, much broader target audience so you have to know you're not doing it for the money you're not doing it for the props or at least i'm not doing it for the props i'm already known in the community and everything so at that point it's just like pushing through and doing it uh, other than that the challenges is writing an introduction because basically an introduction uh, is something you do last i had come up with one but um every publisher and every editor has their preferences regarding the tone, the kind of things you want to see in there, how you structure a story, how you introduce stuff, uh, and, and things like that. And mm -hmm. property-based testing is interesting because you need a framework and it has some kind of obtuse concepts. But pragmatic programmers really like it if in the first three pages you have a snippet of code that someone can run. So it's like, mm -hmm. well, they don't even have the stupid framework installed. How do they run the code? And just a really, really long discussion with the editors and with people at Pragmatic Programmers, like how the hell do we show a thing that people cannot run, but we want them to be able to run it. Coming up with that, uh, I, I think just writing the introduction took me over a month and we rewrote it like two or three times just to get it to a point where everyone was kind of satisfied. And just that period of, of adaptation between where you have the draft and where you are able to write within the tone and uh, structure that the publisher expects is a long time of adaptation. The book was written first as a free website on propertesting.com. And uh, when I wrote that one, I, I decided to do like, you know, I have a very uh, personal style when I write and I just talk to the reader. For that one, I'm gonna do something super like impersonal and uh, kind of well-structured as if it were uh, a paper or something like that. Third person, uh, no pronouns that are any kind of gendering in there or whatnot. And then I get to Prague Prog, I have the full draft manuscript. I was like, we want a personal voice. And so I have to rewrite the whole freaking thing again. That's what I did. <laughs> uh, you, you don't think about that, but that, that's how it goes. Right. Oh, man. Yeah. That is an incredible amount of effort and time. Right. And, and I mean, the biggest challenge of the wise, now that I think about it, was a huge one is just like, how do we make a programming book use two programming languages at the same time without making it a, a, a huge nightmare? And uh, the only other book that I knew that did that was Purely Functional Data Structure by Chris Okazaki that you have mentioned on the podcast quite a few mm -hmm. times. <laughs> <laughs> you're going you're gonna to get through it at some point, Amos. Thanks for bringing that up, Fred. I appreciate it. Amos, now we, you have we to believe in you, Amos. <laughs> Just keep going. <laughs> but right, that, that book is written, I think the main language, if I recall, is SML, standard ML. And then there's an appendix for Haskell code at the end. And so mm -hmm. that's what I did for the first uh, three beta versions. We had big discussions about like, can it be an Erlang only book? Can it be an Elixir only book? Can it do both, uh, both with an appendix? And something like um, a month before the final date, just like, you know what, Fred, the appendix won't cut it. We want it in line. And so I've started writing everything, testing a kind of uh, formatting that would make sense in the text. The thing I didn't want to do is just like inline snippets of code with no separations, because at that point you have to like introduce a bit of code in Erlang, say, and now for Elixir, and then you introduce that one. It's just like extremely badly structured. 
And there is no tooling within the Pragmatic Programmer stuff that just expects you to switch languages everywhere. So I had to cheat, like the entire thing I got out of the structure they had and I used like colored and tinted code snippets to do the little title section and then I used Vim macros and replaced everything by hand in all of the files to do oh it. Oh my god. <laughs> so I, I really, really cared about trying to make something that works there, but it's really interesting to work within the framework there because they have tool developers and at some point the tool developers like this supporting what you want to do would have too much impact on other books we're not going to do it figure it out wow and wow. so yeah it's uh it's fun but i think it worked very very well i really appreciate your work in there uh and and i i actually am glad that you went with two different languages i think it's it adds a little to the concepts and understanding them whenever you see them written in two different ways like the same thing it it just helped me follow the flow quite a bit and and you know prop check has some things that are very different in syntax wise than proper. And so it makes it a little easier to, to bounce between the two if you need to. The, the interesting thing from my point of view is that I, I know both are lying in Elixir and my mental scenario, how it would go is that, I don't know, there's something like 12 or 13 chapters in there. By the time you're halfway through the book, you essentially will know enough about either of the languages to only use one kind of snippet uh, and get along kind of fine. And that was the big kind of challenge in there. It's like, is there a point in the book where you stop putting both languages because you expect someone to be able to figure it out or you just stick with it the entire way through? Right. Yeah, I remember there was a lot of discussion about it because I um, I remember getting the original beta and you know having to like flip back and forth or whatever. But I, I don't know. I thought that was okay. I guess other people felt stronger about it than I did. So I'm glad that it ended up the way it did. I hated flipping back and forth. Uh, <laughs> ma mainly when I was reading it um, on my iPad, I would... Like you click the link to go to the Elixir code and the embedded link and I would read the Elixir code and then I would hit the wrong button and exit the book instead of hitting back. And so then when I get back into the book, I can't go back to exactly where I was reading because that back functionality is no longer there. And I had to scroll all the way back in the book <laughs> and find out what page I was on. It was, uh, I think it slowed me down quite a bit. So there's still a, a short Elixir appendix for longer snippets of code because the thing we want to avoid is have like three or four continuous pages of code in the book. Yeah, and for sense. these, the thing we added is just a backlink at the bottom, like here's where the mm -hmm. code is from, and then you can click that one if the back button is not working, which is probably nice for people with a paper book as well because the page number is written. I plan on grabbing a paper book. Just, I, I, yeah, I like Yeah, I them. like paper books. I, I try to get rid of the paper books, but then I keep buying them as soon as I make place for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I keep, I keep whittling down all my technical books. I keep getting rid of more and more. Just keep trying to keep like the, the greatest hits. <laughs> The ones I actually use. I think my library is getting better because of doing the same thing, though. At some point, someone's going to have to stop coming up with books. Otherwise, there's just not going to be enough place. <laughs> that, too. The great thing is most of them that are about a single technology, after you know, 10 years, you can probably get rid of it. Yeah, I can't think of any of them. I just, gave, I just got rid of about 20 books the other day. Need shelf room. I ditched all my Java books from forever ago. And then yesterday, I was like, damn it, I have to write Java because I needed to fix a client thing for like an Android thing. And yeah. And all of a sudden, I was like, how do I do anything in this language? I have forgotten all of it. So that was fun. Uh, you say that like it's a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm writing Java right now. And I can commiserate Keith Lee. Especially, especially Maven and mm, mm -mm. Yeah. Maven plugins. That's what I was working on the other day. It was really good. Yeah, I was I went I, I was living that Gradle life. 
Uh, Gradle's a step up, though. From and, that's, and it was still terrible. <laughs> like, it was still just an awful experience. I don't want to be involved. I, I've never really used either of them because I've avoided the JVM as much as I could, but Maven's repeatable builds at the very least seem like a good feature to have. It's just that I think people hate the XML. That's my understanding as well. Yes, and then we were trying to do some like we were trying to build some custom like multi-module projects with Maven, and it's actually not actually not bad, but um, it's just some of the docu- documentation is like a little bit misleading and very specific, and so it's a little bit more painful than I think it needs to be. But I think you're right. It does too many things is a is a big part of it. Like it does so much, and it need, it's trying to accommodate. It's like an Apache tool. It's it's like how Kafka also can provide like user authentication on for a Hadoop <laughs> cluster or something. Like it does just too many things, and so that all the options that you have are impossible to like wade through. Which that's been my experience. I think like once you get it working and attach it to whatever you know ID IDE thing it's fine it's like getting it set up is atrocious though our our whole show is like an advertisement for attention deficit disorder <laughs> <laughs> we just went from property testing book to books on the shelf to Java to maven well we were talking about <laughs> books and then Keith Lee said something about Java I mean I, I care about build tools very hard as well so yeah, you 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 have to. I have to. Yeah, ha- having to is the right. You're way one to half it. of uh, Rebar three, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's the interesting thing is that I, I tell everyone like never get involved in maintaining a build tools, but oh god, we need maintainers. <laughs> <laughs> What's the worst part about maintaining a, a build tool versus your other tools that you have? No hesitation on that. Well, no, two things. One of them is getting, uh, you know. We are multi-platform, so getting it to work on all the POSIX compliant things and then Windows is kind of really, really fun because you have to test it everywhere with all kinds of builds. But the really big problem is that mostly, at least in the airline community, there are very large corporate users that have very large private code bases. And what happens is that you will get error reports like feature X does not work. And then you ask them, what's the configuration? It's like, we cannot make your minimal build. Do you have code that shows what happens? Like, no, it's all private. And so you're stuck debugging the builds of people you don't know for configurations you don't have with codes you don't have access to. Oh my God. Well, how do you go about doing that then? You just hate your life. (laughs) Uh, No, I mean, for some of them, it's going to be a a back and forth with them, possibly in private channels. In some cases, they are able to reproduce it to a more minimal uh, size of it. But frankly, if I have like three to five hours a week to put to open source work, four to five hours of them are going to be uh, support tickets and helping people debug stuff and everything. And so uh, I don't blame people for that. So I'm coming to the conclusion that essentially the debugging features that we've put in Rebar 3, uh, we've put them for us as maintainers and not necessarily for the benefit of users. And what I'm coming to realize is that essentially uh, we've built the tool in such a way that we are forced to always be involved in there. Uh, I have this blog post I wrote a few weeks ago about operable software. There's this little bit of theory about you have to put probes in your system that lets various people debug the things at the right level. And um, I think Rebar 3, the problem that we have baked into that one is that 
we made no distinction between a user of the program and a developer of the program. And so necessarily as a user, when you come with something, you're not quite sure how it works, you're stuck with the developer information, which you cannot make sense of. And so that's something I'd like to find time to address a bit in the future, because when I look at the features and the comments and everything that people have, my understanding is that it works well, but it, once you go out of the well-walked path, it starts being a bit hard without knowing how it understand, how it works internally, and that's a weakness of the tool. Has, have those thoughts led to any revelations about how you're going to continue development of the tool in the future? Or At this time, not yet, uh, mostly because uh, we have to structure the change properly, not to break all kinds of integrations. Like I found out there are uh, security auditing tools that rely on the output format of how we output a dependency tree to uh, analyze the versions and stuff like that. So there are all these unspoken dependencies that if you break something and someone only upgrades their version six months late, well, it can take you a year before you hear of a bug that you introduced in the past. Uh, we support six versions of backwards compatibility, so we just started using maps because people with builds on R16 could not use them before. And, and so uh, I, I forgot where I was going, speaking of ADHD topic. I think you're talking about how you're getting at how you weren't going to right so so the the thing i'm I'm opening a proposal for probably a bit later today in the tool is adding a new layer of debugging because we have error warning info and debug and I'm adding a diagnostic layer where I want to make a clear distinction between uh, diagnostic is for maintainers and debug is for interactions for the user eventually I'd like to figure out how we could introduce something a bit similar to uh you know, if you're using Brew on OSX, there's Brew Doctor that tells you what is kind of odd with your system. I'd like to be able to write a bit something like that that gives you an overview of the config you have for your builds, what is happening in there, and what could be wrong or, you know, common traps that you could be falling into. Uh, because it's one of the big distinctions between Mix and Rebar 3 is that Mix is a very imperative tool. You're just writing code in the configuration files. In Rebar 3, we took the declarative approach. You don't write code for anything, and so you have to have the right configuration. And if there's something missing, it's not necessarily obvious why that breaks your build unless you know how it works. So that's the thing I, I hope to make clearer in the future. Thinking about what you just said between the imperative approach and the declarative approach, when you were building, you sounds like you were pretty intentional about being declarative so that you did not have folks writing configuration, right? Or what was the kind of thought process behind that? Well, the idea is that, you know, it's the difference between the procedure and the intent. It's a bit the same way when you have a live system that you want to deploy new configurations to. There's this idea that there is a desired final state and there is the current state. And what you need to do is bridge the gap between the two, to, between the two of these to make the transition. And so we inherited the configuration format from the previous rebar, but that's the kind of thing, right? Uh, the, the configuration format should be what you want the build to look like. Uh, when you mention Maven, Maven has this kind of concept of what is a goal, a thing that the tool should be doing, and then it's free to order things however it wants to do what it needs. Whereas if you're using an imperative tool like Mix is, you are intimately tying your local configuration to the procedural steps to making something work. And so you are uh, intimately tying the configuration, the intent, with the implementation of it. And I think that removes some very interesting flexibility in what you can do as a tool builder, but it gives you more flexibility as a tool user. It's just that you end up with something like make files and batch scripts. Everyone has their own small recipes that they copy paste from, from place to place. And uh, I think in the long term, that makes for an 
unhealthy ecosystem. Right. Yeah. It's, it's always much easier to do optimizations. It's like compiler design or something like it's so much easier to do optimizations if you have constraints and you can effectively build in constraints by making things declarative. But it also removes power from the end user. The canonical example of this for me is like CSS. Like CSS is this declarative API that should be really nice for the end, you know, because it's like now the, the browsers can do this, uh, all these optimizations under the hood to draw and paint things onto a screen. But at this kind of point, we're, we're sort of like running up against a bunch of the problems in that. And you see more and more people trying to build procedural APIs because all they really want is like drawing and painting rules. And so now you you have to find that balance, that like Goldilocks zone between like giving people enough power to do the things they need to do while also being able to like build in optimizations because you can't optimize anything that if you allow arbitrary access on the end user's perspective, you can't optimize anything because they can do whatever they want. <laughs> so you're sort of beholden to that. The, the kind of cheat that we put in rebar three is that there is a rebar.config and there is a rebar.config.script where you can use eScript to generate a configuration to do something. But this became interesting when working with the mixed folks in Elixir because we now have uh, support for Elixir dependencies in Erlang the same way Elixir has dependencies uh, in Erlang as well and it all works. But it was interesting because for us it was impossible to parse any of the mixed configuration files because we need to have a full Elixir interpreter to be able to do that. Like it's just it's impossible for us to even read the file to know if it's valid without having Elixir installed at first. So that has some interesting side effects from that point of view. How do you, how do you deal with that? Tristan implemented most of that, but if I recall, there's uh, a look into first, if we can compile with the rebar config files that we have, if there is a given file structure and otherwise there is a mix.config. Mix.config is always there in Elixir. It is not always there in rebar three because if the project has the right structure and the right file, we know how to compile the thing already. It has the OTP structure. Mix always has a mix config, but we essentially built a plugin and uh, the plugin itself has the expectation that Elixir is installed and everything. So that's how we deal with that. We, we offshore everything to plugins when we need to. And internally, that's how we built everything. Every single part of Rebar 3 is using the same plugin API that any plugin would use. That seems reasonable. It, yeah. That's cool though. I mean, that's that's nice that people will, that will be able to like share more stuff backwards and forwards. That, that's a big hope there. That's always going to be better for the community if we can do that. That's my intent. Yeah. I'm just thinking about the two communities. It seems like that might, feels like it's from my limited experience is happening more that people are sharing things back and forth. When Elixir first came out and that's something like, I don't know, six or eight years ago, it was starting in there. Uh, I, I was in the first IRC channel when Jose was starting the project after the first announcements. There used to be that phase where the Elixir community would just rewrap Erlang libraries and uh, without necessarily giving the credit, I think you have mentioned this on, on this podcast already. Uh, but when you would go to Hacker News, for example, the marketing of Elixir as a language was often like, we have all the good tech from Erlang and we got rid of this disgusting language on top and everything like that. And so it created a very, very tense kind of attitude between both languages where Elixir was actively trying to poach people from the Erlang community to do their things and everything like that. And it, it did it not on, uh, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, but on stepping on their heads. <laughs> and, and since then, I think it's been corrected a whole lot. And the new reality, I think, so far is that the Elixir community, uh, by sheer number, I think is now larger than the Erlang community, but is mostly restricted to web apps through Phoenix or smaller frameworks like Racks or Nerves on the other side. And Erlang still has the lion's share of infrastructure components 
and possibly the, the people knowing how to build infrastructure components as well, even though like both of them exist in both communities. And that seems to be congealing as a structure a bit, right? Elixir, uh, from what I'm seeing, does not expand a whole lot outside of these areas or does so a bit slowly. And similarly for Erlang, it's just staying in infrastructure and really making a niche there and living in that area. So fusing the two communities together and getting more interplay between uh, all of us, I think, would give better products on perspectives just by being able to use the experience and libraries of each other doing that yeah 100 percent. i know that i've reached back to quite a few erlang libraries um snmp ftp stuff like that it's just it's beautiful to not have to go out and and rewrite all that and do you know the hard legwork of of years of bug fixing and and uh, actually sitting down and thinking about how the system works and i i don't know i i appreciate the Erlang community for everything that, that they've brought and keep bringing. I appreciate them for most of the things they've brought. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a caveat. There's always a couple caveats. <laughs> I would ask you what you don't appreciate, but that's probably not a good conversation to have on this show. Exactly. Don't give, don't give, don't give any of any, any, any air. Let's not add any fuel to the fire. Chris is a man of many facets and caveats. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, we can make a deal like you say what you don't appreciate, but then I have to say what I don't appreciate as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think the things that I wouldn't appreciate would also be things that you wouldn't appreciate <laughs> okay yeah i think i get an idea what you're saying there. <laughs> i mean we would be super remiss to not talk a little bit about um property-based testing since you're yes, since you're since, since we've you're got you show. here i mean since you're here and all so we're, we're getting back on that yes all right actually i want to go back to uh you, you know you said that this book came out of um, working with coworkers and trying to get them on board. Whenever you're working with others who haven't been doing any property-based testing, what is the hardest hurdle for them to get through? And, and is where does that aha moment come from? I mean, the hardest hurdle is just getting someone to sit down and get the basics of doing it because you already know how to write unit tests for the most part and writing integration tests. And whenever you're doing any kind of uh, code for production, you're usually on a schedule. And so you have to write, the, the thing you don't want to do is you write the feature and then you spend six days trying to figure out how to write the test for it when you already know how to do it otherwise. So finding out the time to do it is kind of interesting. The way I framed it at my current workplace is that there are some critical areas in the code. These kinds of uh, neuralgic points where you have to be as bug free as possible and for these this is where like it's worth taking the time to sit down and figuring out the property based testing uh, for the whole deal because the rest of it like if it's just passing some string for a configuration to some other module it's easy to do with a unit test and it's relatively low risk right as long as it's the right type of data structure it's going to make it there it's going to be fine but the tricky tricky low level logic of you know diffing binary protocols or something like that it's worth building these the next one i'm interested in in building a bit more is the stateful properties with high level modeling for system and integration testing but you have this very high level description of what the system should be able to do the user logs in, they upload an image, it goes to the backend there and it's visible on the next request. And the model is, is surprisingly simple and the implementation extremely fast. Uh, but those tests tend to be extremely slow because they contain a lot of components. So choosing the right ones and the right scope for it is uh, part of the challenge at this point. I, I've always felt like, this is probably just 
all limited to me uh, in my experience with it, but I've always felt like conceptually stateful tests are much easier to understand purely conceptually not in implementation because it's it's much harder to write them <clears throat> like it's much much more complicated to write them but the idea of like well i have a state machine your app is a state machine and i walk through a bunch of transitions and i check the I check how the state of the world is afterwards against like a model of how it should work. That to me was a much easier conceptual model to, to get my head around. And I think it's because with, you know, with a stateless property, it's often very, it's very hard to build like concrete properties a lot of, in a lot of ways. They're sort of like mathy or they're very general. And it's hard sometimes to work out what the property of this thing ought to be. And uh, so I've, I think in that regard, like you can spend a lot of time sitting there trying to figure out like, what am I even testing? And then you end up building like, you know, you re-implement the algorithm twice <laughs> and, now, and now you're not really testing anything anymore or whatever. Like it's much harder to do that. I think that's my, that's my intuition. Right. Uh, I think that's fair. And it's probably made worse from the point of view that if you're writing this stateless property, uh, the alternative is a unit test that is extremely simple. If you're writing a stateful property, the alternative is spinning up servers and all of that crap. And it's already hard to begin with. And the interesting thing is that uh, when you're writing the stateful models, you're more or less testing that the transitions are right. And these transitions don't exist in a stateless uh, version of it. So frankly, you could be having the same difficulty writing or coming up with good properties if you did it with the stateful model, if you put the same amount of effort in the assertions in the post conditions of the stateful model as you do for the stateless ones. But as developers, we're very, very good at screwing up side effects and transitions. And so we catch a surprisingly good amount of bugs just doing our transitions correct. No, that, 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 that's a good point. Smaller or stateless properties are certainly a bit harder to come up with something good. And this is true from the point of view when you try to test something exce ex exceedingly simple and something very complex. Whereas a stateful property is good whenever things are complex. Uh, the hard part of stateful properties is whenever you don't have good determinism in what the system should be doing. Like if you're trying to do overload handling, like some requests are going to fail and some are going to pass. Writing a stateful model is exceedingly hard because you have almost no predictive ability from your model to what the system will do. And so for these, I think stateful properties are hard to do. Like it's easy to make one that passes all the time, but you're not really sure it tests all the important conditions in there. This was a problem I, I experienced when I was building um, some of the raft stuff is that like when a when a node is, you know, dies or whatever, um, and a, a new leader needs to be elected, you don't get to control what leader gets elected. It's random, or in theory, it's random, like the algorithm's random. But because of that, now you've lost like determinism in your tests. You can't say like, well, this lead, this other node should be elected leader. You have to just say sort of generally like a leader should be elected after X amount of time. And if it hasn't, then you, you fail the test. Right, or you hold that kind of, you know, that, that placeholder for the future value of what the leader is gonna be. And you use that in your generators where, if it's a random node, you pick one of the nodes that you know, and if you have to send a message to the leader, you can store the leader that has been elected, but you don't know which it is so far. That was the trickiest part of all that. And there are definitely ways of making those things more deterministic, like controlling timers and stuff like that to try to work it all out. But it's still, it's it's hard. It's hard to like nail down that amount of determinism. And obviously then it gets into this problem of like the tests don't become repeatable. If you have some node uh, it, like that it works one time and it goes to the node A or whatever, then it like shrinking becomes harder. You know, really getting like a minimal test case gets a lot harder at that point. 
At the beginning of all this, you mentioned, Chris, that state-based uh, is a little easier a lot of times when you ever have that model to come up with. And I, I think I've run into that quite a bit where I will start out writing, writing stateful property tests and then end up switching over to a stateless one because I start to see the, the actual underlying properties pop out the that don't need that that model I mean, you and i had that when we were messing around with the um uh cues and stuff from the okasaki book yeah thank you it's <laughs> waking out that the devil book you're gonna make it one day where we we wrote those as stateful and then transitioned them out of that and then fred had some good points in there too uh about i i showed it to fred and i don't know if you remember fred but i i asked about it and i was trying to avoid looking into the data structure just because of object oriented was in my mind like don't look inside and you you came back and said well the properties are the invariants on the data inside so that's what you need to have some tests on data structures are the easiest for that one because it's just like if you do a red black tree there's always a black node between both of them it's like okay that's my property put that in there and then the, the property for a red black tree takes something like 15 lines and the entire structure is guaranteed to be good then you only have to have a little property on the site to make sure that what you write is what you get out, like you're not just putting garbage keys in there and you're good. Like for those, it's really, really nice because all the computer scientists already established all the environments you have to maintain. So you just have to reuse these. Speaking of standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Of giants, right? Yeah. Like I said, conceptually, stateful tests are easier. But I mean, most of what I end up doing these these days when I'm doing that kind of stuff is working to figure out how to take a stateful thing and turn it into a stateless thing and and move that backwards because it's just easier to get determinism. You don't have to do stateful generation, which removes like a whole bunch of implementation complexity. And it's just easier to sort of reason about if you can get back to like a stateless world, you're going to be in good shape. Sometimes to me that the hardest part is just deciding like I'm going to do a property test of that. And I know it feels very, very simple, but I very well know that it's possible it's going to take me 16 hours as I figure out all kinds of bugs and things I didn't think could be happening in that stupid thing. And then I'm stuck having to think about that. Whereas I could be happy in my ignorance and just putting a few <laughs> unit tests and it works 99% of the time. And then I can deal with that later if it breaks. Ignorance is bliss, right? But isn't that kind of reveal part of the point? right, for having more robust testing infrastructure for your system, right, part of forcing yourself to think about what's actually going on on a different level and like discovering some of these bugs, like it takes longer, but isn't that also part of the point? Right, absolutely. And you know, part of it is uh, one of the books on testing I hated the most, and this is going to be a bit controversial, was the Kenbeck <laughs> book on test-driven development. And I freaking hated that, for that thing the entire time, <laughs> because the whole attitude of that book is... Forget everything you know. You know nothing. You just start from the list of features and you pretend you're an idiot and start from nowhere and reinvent everything. And for the entire book, he uses that banking system with floats in it and never corrects that. It's like, I know floats are not good for money. Please fix that. It's like, no, the feature never came up. You don't have to ever fix it. Right. And <laughs> I hated that attitude. And that's the thing that when you do unit tests, you really have to rely on your experience to figure out what would be interesting corner cases. And if you don't have the experience, you're not going to figure it out if you don't have the knowledge and everything. That's been one of the wonderful things of property-based testing to me is that not always, but in many situations, it highlights failures of imagination. I did not know that this was an important or edge condition. It revealed it to me. And I'm pretty sure that people who do their modeling in TLA plus and anything that is formal ACTA or something like that 
get even more out of it. I haven't really, really played with these tools, but at the very least for property-based testing, it's been extremely effective for me to that, just to let me figure out how little I actually know about a topic to do it. And uh, like, it's very, very humbling for software development. And to some extent, I, I wish it existed for political opinions as well, because we probably... <laughs> <laughs> Especially for uh, white male tech workers such as myself. The thing you were saying about the about yeah, well that feature never came up or whatever. That stuff gets me as well. There's a um, I don't know if you've ever seen these, but there's there's a whole set of like what they called like the XP challenge compiler, uh, XP challenges or something like that, extreme programming challenges or whatever. Yeah, and something was, like code katas and everything. Yeah, these were this were some of like the original. It's like Michael Feathers and some of the original like um, XP movement people. They would come up with these challenges and try to push XP practices and see like where they were useful and where they weren't. And so these were all like, let's take a bunch of things that probably aren't good fits for XP and try it. And so the very first one is uh, to build a compiler for some toy language. And the very first response is basically, I would never do this because I would just push back on the business. And I was like, you can't do that. That's cheating. Like you can't, you can't just opt out of the challenge. <laughs> that's not fair it's like answering i would give that to the interns right right yeah that's not allowed um but to to your uh to your uh, point anna about you know isn't that the point of like finding deeper understanding about this stuff or part of the point oh yeah yeah i mean definitely part of it and i totally agree with that and um i was having like a, a discussion and in as much as you can have a discussion on twitter um with friend of the show bruce tate <laughs> about testing and um it's probably one of those things where he and i actually probably agree more than we disagree but that doesn't necessarily come across on twitter and um well your mode of communication is your first mistake i i make a lot of communication mistakes in terms of medium i got we've talked about my my trips onto irc it's not good anyway you know he he had made the point of like you know 100 percent code coverage or something like that and it's got me thinking, and I think I, I mentioned it to some, to some folks, but it, it made me really kind of question like that as a philosophy. And I think that, you know, something like 100% code coverage can be a little bit misleading because, you know, to use my canonical example for property-based testing, it's like if you're building an RGB to hex converter and you throw a single input in there, you technically have 100% test coverage. Like there's one function. You put, you, you pass like three numbers to it and get out a hex value. And as long as that example works, like you can prove that you have 100% code coverage, but you haven't actually exhaustively tested that thing. And the only thing that can get you close to that is just to generate a bunch of garbage and try to like throw it in there and make sure that the properties hold. Because the thing that actually matters is that you're covering all the data that could come into the system. And I think that's a very different way to think about the problem. And that's part of that. Like you start to think deeper about what it is you're actually testing against. Right. I mean, there, there's this idea, there's the idea that coverage is not just coverage, right? There's branch interleaving and stuff like that. And then you start playing with uh, concolic testing, which we have in your line with a tool called Cuter by Custis and friends, where they use a SAT solver or something like that to make sure that all the possible paths are being covered in your code. And so you give them a test and you give it a type and it tries to see if all possible instances of that types are logically executed in there and it can make it work. Uh, the, the, the other one uh, interesting of that is that we have a bit of code here where we work on a hardware platform and the function is to reboot the device. We cannot cover this line of code because when we do, we interrupt the test and the machine reboots. Oh, right. Of course. <laughs> so 100% code coverage is a garbage idea. Is actually just impossible. <laughs> it's just not possible, right? 
So, so the, the way code coverage needs to be treated is a proxy, like high code coverage is not a sign that you have good tests, but low code coverage is a pretty sure tell that your tests are not very good. And that's the extent of what you can get out of it. Right. Well, and to your point, Fred, like what does the code coverage look like around like mission critical areas? If you have code coverage, if you have like unit testing or whatever kind of code coverage around things that are fairly straightforward and low risk, but then what do your areas look like that are relatively high risk? Yeah, that, that's how you stop the hackers. All the critical stuff is a tar pit that everyone crashes all the time. There's no way to hack that. You don't understand how it works. But yeah, that, that's the thing. At some point, testing is a tool for the team to feel confident that what they're shipping is kind of right for some undefined definition of right. <laughs> that's about it. it. It's like performance. Like You tend to benchmark the core extremely well, and so you have a very fast core. You deploy it, it's slow as hell, and you find out that it's some side method or function that you never thought could be critical. It becomes critical just by how slow it is because nobody thought it would be important. So the importance of something when we develop and the importance of it when we run it is not directly correlated and we just get surprised by that. But of course, if what you have is a thing where you export to CSV, it's not as hard as breaking the save functionality in Word or something where nobody can actually keep their documents. Right. <laughs> right. right. Right, it really just depends. If I can be allowed a little parenthesis here, we mentioned, I think this is something that Chris attributed to you, Anna, of saying like the importance is of, of understanding and getting to understand the entire problem that we're working on. And I think we actually don't want that a whole lot because if we wanted it, uh, we would be using, uh, you know, uh, proven engineering techniques that have worked in the past, like uh, the very strict NASA guidelines about how to structure code, uh, mm -hmm. ADA as a programming language, formal testing and methodologies mm -hmm. of validation. We would be using that. We know they exist. We know they're better than what we're using, but economically, we don't think they make sense, right? We always make that kind of guess in there. And, and that's my kind of um, little suspicion about why Rust is never going to be popular. Rust is currently like Haskell was a language where people go to feel smart. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you go there because all the smart people are you rust is amazing and then you look at rust you try it a bit you understand rust and then you don't use it again but you know that if you need something really really strict it's going to be worth the effort but the effort of thinking about all your problems and getting all your bugs out of the way at first is extremely crippling as a condition if you're not used to thinking that way and I think that Elixir and Erlang have the same problem in being functional uh, where you don't have mutability and stuff like that you know that you need immutability to scale up later, but goddamn, you don't want to care about that right now. You just want to test the thing the first time around. And so you're going to write something in Go. Uh, that's going to take you three weeks. It goes in production. You can take six months to stabilize it, but who cares? You already get feedback on it. If you're using Erlang or Rust or anything like that, it's going to take you maybe six weeks instead of three to ship it. And you're going to take two months to stabilize it instead of six. But a lot of people are still going to make the choice to ship in three weeks because the information you need is not just to be correct. It's also the feedback on how you structure your system and everything else. And so we know what it takes to make a good system reliable. We just don't care. What we're looking for is how to do it on a cheap budget that takes no time. Like that's the actual question. It's not how do we make something good? It's how do we make it good easy? And so property-based testing fall into that same trap as well. I think, I think that's totally right. That's a really, really astute observation that's why the the san francisco still windmill slamming rails apps out there right like i mean that's like the the textbook you know or rather like the the sf playbook is still just build a rails app because you can do that faster than anything else 
statistically 90% of the businesses go out in their first year because they never attracted a user. It's a smart product design decision. It might not be the best engineering decision, but product wise, it makes sense. Well, yeah, I mean, getting out to customers, validating product market fit, figuring out if there is a market. Um, I mean, we've worked with clients that are very early on. We've gotten something out quickly and very early on, they've realized that, oh, we either have to pivot or change completely because our assumptions are not correct, right? Yeah, turns out users didn't want a uh, pet grooming, but for Uber. Or whatever, right? And so I think that's also, that's true from a business perspective. It's like really important to keep that in mind. It's it's like Uber, but for Jello molds. But, but you know, that that's the thing that uh, I almost no longer see in the airline community because everyone kind of made their peace with the idea that airline is never going to be mainstream. We've had a lot of time, it's not gonna happen. It's still being used by like, for 50% of the traffic that goes to the internet or over mobile goes to airline components, but it's never going to be mainstream. I started going to Elixir conferences this year a bit to bridge the gap between communities. And I still hear a lot of people trying to say like, Elixir needs to go mainstream. And I still have that same attitude that it might just not because it has these constraints about how you structure for fault tolerance, how it has immutability. And those are showstoppers to shipping something extremely fast unless you tell, unless you fall exactly in the niche of the language. Elixir is probably gonna have that kind of a crisis of faith in the language in the community where you have to admit that at some point it's not going to be mainstream and it's fine because it's a good fit for the type of problems you're using it for that should be good enough it doesn't need to be something that everyone uses everywhere it does put some limits in the kind of jobs you can get with it but frankly the jobs that can make use of it at that point are likely going to pay more because they have to use it that's a bummer but yeah no no, no. <laughs> i think that's i think i think that's actually a really good you know reality check right like i don't think that's an unreasonable joining this community hugely pivoted what i used to work on i I was web developer, did a lot of Ruby, some Java, um, Python. But um, since moving to the Elixir community, I've been doing more backend and hardware development. Actually, I guess that might be a little on the, I'm on the small side of the Elixir community since I'm not doing Phoenix and, and web development, but just switching over here and using this language to solve problems that I think this language is good at put me into a completely different uh, career path. Right. It's a smaller marketplace. It's a smaller piece for the kind of solutions you sell and everything, but it's a different realm in terms of competition because you're not competing with Rails anymore. You're competing with people writing embedded C and it's still like a very, very good way to do it. Or if you're doing some backend stuff, yeah, it's, it's like, I don't care if it's super popular because in the workspace I'm in, it's better than other stuff in there. And so for me, whether there's a million people that use it for web apps, or if there's a thousand that use it for web apps has absolutely no impact in what I use. The libraries, the talks, the kind of material there is very, very limited. The, the place where it hurts is just this kind of lively feeling in the community and usually the tools and feedbacks you can get for a lot of things. And those are important things that you get in a community that consistently renews itself, right? It's fine to have a small community if you at least get some new blood, some people who live, who leave. But if you have the small community, but it's the same people for the last five or 10 years, then it's a kind of problem because it, it's not its not a community, it's a clique. It becomes stagnant. I have to run. And I do too. Um, thank you, Fred, so much for being on the show. This was super rad. Yeah, it was a pleasure. If people want to keep up with you, where can they do that? Twitter. Erlang mailing list, I have some limited visibility there. I'm just giving the name of the places. I'm assuming there's going to be links on the page. Sure, yeah, we'll, we'll put we'll put links in there. Yeah, there's my blog at ferd.ca where I uh, post from time to time. Uh, usually very, very long pieces of text with no comments because I like talking to the walls. <laughs> <laughs>
I'm around a bunch of slacks. I'm still on IRC. I'm on email. I'm mostly everywhere, I think. I'm not aware of any Discord communities. Maybe there are some, but at some point, there's just so many uh, Electron apps I can run at the same time. Fair enough. Well, it was super fun to have you on, especially since we talk or refer to you all the time. It was nice to actually have you on the show. Talk to you and, and, and hear from you instead of just talking about you. And I have so many bad opinions that we didn't even have time to get into. <laughs> oh, well, we'll have to have you on again soon to, yes, to hear some yes. of those. I will complain about pipes and all that kind of stuff if you want. It's going to be interesting. <laughs> I want, see, I want to hear you talk about with. I feel like that. I feel like there's good. There's there's a lot. There's like a whole episode on with. Yeah, it's gonna be interesting. Uh, <laughs> I, I have more developed complaints about pipes than about with, though. Uh, but yeah, sure, any of them. Is fine. <laughs> so episode two, Fred with pipes. Right? <laughs> yeah. Piping up on pipes. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, you all. Have a good day. This was have fun. A have a good day. See ya. Bye. <laughs>